Welcome to episode 13 of Laser. Today's show is NASA and microgravity themed. We start off interviewing Jack and Liz from the ASU Dust Devils experiment. They're planning to take dust samples into microgravity to record how planetary bodies might have formed from dust clouds. Then we talk about fighting fires on the International Space Station. And finally, creating the coldest temperatures in the universe inside the planned ISS Cold Atom Lab experiment. Hi, and welcome to episode 13 of Let's Agree Science and Engineering are Rad. Uh, I'm Cameron Copas. I'm a graduate student at Arizona State University studying uh, material science, and my research is in quantum computing and superconductors. Um, and my co-host today is Chase. Chase is... Uh, Still unemployed. But he, he, Chase has been working in the uh, aerospace, aerospace, aerospace and, and defense, defense industries. Industry, and I'm trying to currently switch into uh, semiconductor fabrication and process. Yeah, so semiconductors are pretty cool. And more applicable, less dependent on politics. There you go. A lot of cool things to say about semiconductors. But not exactly germane to what we're talking about. Actually, my previous career is more about what we are going to be talking about today because the theme of this episode is just space up the yin-yang. Just space everywhere. I think we can narrow it down even more and say that the topic today is microgravity. Everything we're doing is about specifically microgravity experiments. That that NASA is currently conducting uh, both on the ISS and um, on whatever that uh, vomit comet sure. rocket plane that they do is. Yeah, that thing. All right. Yeah. Well, we're going to start off with an interview with uh, Jack Lightholder and Liz Dyer from the Arizona State University's Dust Devils team. Um, this is a team that's conducting an experiment with NASA, a microgravity experiment, to see the effects of... Uh, well, they're trying to see how microgravity affects the behavior, the interactions of ultrafine dust particles in in a vacuum. Yeah, and they're trying to do that to examine uh, how maybe to do proof of concept for the origins of asteroids, planetoids, moons, etc., and how that all uh, works out. We understand currently how it works on a large scale because of gravity, but we're they're investigating the uh, the very small. The very start, the very small end, the sm- the start of that process. Yeah, so uh, that's pretty cool, it's and very, very we exciting. will we will uh, go into that interview now. I wanted to stick in this note in post production to warn you all that the audio in this interview was completely washed out by an air conditioning unit in the office where we recorded. And yes, we do use air conditioning in March in Arizona. We had to use noise removal software to be able to hear anything at all, so I apologize for everyone in the interview sounding like they're talking out of a can. The rest of the show should be fine, though, and we'll avoid this problem in the future. Okay, we have 
Jack Lightholder and Liz Dyer from the ASU Dust Devils microgravity experiment here. And all right, so Jack, do you want to give a short introduction about what the project is and sure. what your involvement is with it? All right. Uh, so my name is Jack Lightholder. I'm the team lead for the ASU Dust Devils microgravity research group. We're working under the NASA Reduced Gravity Student Flight Opportunities Program, which is an opportunity that gives uh, undergraduate students the opportunity to fly in the microgravity environment on the zero-g flights that they provide and do uh, some real science. All right, and Liz? Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having us here, by the way, guys. I'm Liz Dyer, and I'm a senior with the School of Earth and Space Exploration studying astrobiology and biogeosciences and I am the science lead for the ASU Dust Devils microgravity team. Cool. So what is the, what's the overall goal of this experiment? What are you guys trying to... So the overarching goal for this experiment is to um, kind of get an idea and test some theories about how dust particles or tiny coagulates of dust particles form into bigger things like protoplanets or asteroids or anything like that in space. So we're going to take some dust samples up into microgravity and hopefully witness the weaker forces that cause the particles to coagulate. Yeah, we're really looking at the first few seconds before you really have gravity take a hold on these particles, before the clumps get so large that they have a gravitational force. We're looking at that, that weak electric force that creates the, um, the beginning of that clump. Okay, so you're looking to see the very beginnings of how a planet or any, mm-hmm. anything forms. Okay, so why don't you walk us through a little like the the process you're using to capture data on that. Sure. So we have a uh, experiment that'll be flying that's uh, 12 sealed chambers, each one with their own um, composition and volume of different uh, space-like particles. So we have uh, silicates, aluminum, graphite, graphite yeah. and meteorite, and JSC-1A lunar regulus simulant. <laughs> so what is that? Okay, we're going <laughs> yeah, to really, uh, explain that. That was a lot of oh, okay. numbers and letters thrown together. Um, so the Johnson Space Center uh, creates in their lab lunar regular simulant, and they they base it on the basaltic mare on the moon. So when we take that up there and watch that coagulate, we can kind of correlate that data with. Okay. So fake moon rocks. Yes. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> fake moon powder. Fake moon doctorism. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And then we have a similar one for Martian um, Martian dust as well as the Murchison meteorite, which is actually a real um, real piece of Murchison meteorite that was given to us by the Center for Meteorite Studies. Okay. You got to pulverize that, pulverize that to make your particles? It is, yeah. It'll dust. be in, everything's in a dust form between... Um, 354 to 400 micron, and then some of the chambers have up to 800 micron, just depending on... So we're studying different compositions, different volumes, to, to see what those those combinations, if any of those combinations produce usable data versus the other ones. Okay. okay. So the microgravity plane um, is owned by Zergy Corporation and um, used by NASA. It's a 727-200, which has basically been stripped out on the inside. They've taken out all the seats and they've padded the walls, um, changed the engine configuration so it can go straight up and then straight back down, similar to like a sine wave that you'll go, you'll go straight up and you'll have positive g-forces as you're climbing, and then it'll nose over and it'll go straight down for about 40 seconds where you'll experience weightlessness. It's essentially like skydiving, but with the plane around you, you have the relative feeling of microgravity because everything is falling at the same speed. So this is the this is that vomit comet. The that vomit you see comet all the yeah. time. The weightless our, wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Our our listeners will be familiar if they've ever seen a comedy about astronauts or Archer or pictures of Stephen Hawking 
floating in it <laughs> from a few years ago. Yeah. It's been getting a lot of publicity recently. Um, who was that? The, the, the swimsuit model. Kate Upton. Yeah, the they had um, the Sports, Sports Illustrated. Illustrated, yeah. Had their model, her, their cover page. That's pretty uh, funny. Model, yeah. Okay. So yeah, it, it's starting to be a more of a commercial thing. Like you can do, it's almost like space tourism. You can, oh, you yeah, can you buy can tickets. Pay. Yeah, that's pretty neat. I think they're like five to seven thousand dollars if you want to just go up and have fun for uh, okay. a couple minutes of microgravity. That's but awesome. NASA is paying. There is NASA is paying for this. Mm-hmm. So we get um, we get five flight spots over two different flights. We'll get thirty parabolas on each. They'll do twenty nine microgravity, which is the closest we can get to zero gravity. Um, you know, being on Earth still. You know, since there's always some gravity. And then we'll have one that's a, a lunar simulant, so it would basically be like walking on the moon. You'll have that kind of high jump mentality. Oh, wow. And then one Martian. So it would be like being on Mars. So um, for target um, projects that have some kind of component of microgravity versus lunar versus Martian, they can get that data on the last two uh, parabolas. How can you simulate lunar or Martian gravity just by going the planes go falling at a different angle? Exactly, yeah. Shallower not just the 45 yeah, degrees, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but the actual data you're collecting is you're trying to see how they all coagulate together in the first couple seconds before they're they, you know, amass enough mass for better they start to, you know. So the sequence of the experiment essentially is as the plane noses over, you'll hit that microgravity point. Um, the, the particles will kick up into the center of the chamber because of a high-speed vibration from the engines. So you'll actually get them up into the center of the chamber. That was one of the things that was learned on the first time this flew. They had a bump motor in there that, um, because of the laws of physics, they believed that they would stay on the bottom of the chamber unless a force acted on them and they were kicked up into the chamber. But what ended up happening was they didn't realize that high-speed vibration would actually kick them up anyway. So you had extra momentum created by the bump motor, which essentially did um, kind of a washing machine motion where they just kind of went all over the chamber and pinballed around so they had too much of a force on them um, and we want to try to pull as many parameters and forces out of it to kind of get that that clean microgravity float as possible so we'll get hit the top they'll go up into the center of the chamber the chambers are all pulled under vacuum beforehand and then there's a camera on the front which uh, GoPro was nice enough to sponsor us with uh, basically five thousand dollars worth of uh, cameras and other equipment so we'll have a camera facing each chamber and then we'll have it backlit by LEDs in the back so we'll have basically a, um, a stage for each of these inside the chamber to be able to observe what's going on inside. Okay, so how, how much time is it is a typical microgravity uh, in each parabola? Roughly 40 seconds. Um, the, the experiment, um, the analysis on the experiment was that we need a, a minimum of 16 seconds to see real usable data. So that gives us enough time at the beginning and the end to kind of let the particles get up there and start to float around in a natural behavior so that they're not impacted by that high-speed vibration initially. And then the only data recording is really the uh, the cameras mm-hmm. that, are, yes. that are on there. Okay. And then I guess a follow-up question is when, the, when you guys come to the end of a parabola and you start going down again and they all sort of settle back they all sort of settle back down to the so they don't they don't ever clump together and in any sort of uh, permanent way. Yeah, yeah there's no don't. permanent uh, no permanent clumping. Okay, so just because there's not enough time, or because of the, or because the particles are just so fine that they don't. Uh, yeah, they're a fine um, a grain type that they're not. Uh, there's nothing to actually stick them together. Okay. 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 Plus, we'll actually hit uh, positive gravity uh, one to. 1.5 G's coming back up in the plane, so we'll actually have a positive G load that'll actually stick them, the yeah, break them back apart. So what is actually 
bringing the dust particles together because it's not there. It's not gravitational interactions between them. Right. Not on this time scale with these small particles. So right. what what's what forces do you expect to actually matter? Right, exactly. So taking away the gravity, we're really just looking at the weaker forces between particle to particle, which is actually contact electrification or triboelectric charging. And it, it's dependent on a couple things, composition of the particles, sizes of the particles, and and obviously the environment. So Can you, can you elaborate on the term triboelectricity? Sure. So... Um, Triboelectricity is, is basically a contact electrification between two things. So just like static electricity when you rub your hair together or, or something. So we're looking at um, two particles um, contacting each other and exchanging charges or, or having the same charge or, or something. We're not positive about that and we can't study that up there, but that's what happens between the two particles and then those two particles in, come in contact with other particles and that's coagulation. Okay. So, so it's primarily electrical rather than gravitational. Electrical. It is, it is. And are any of these uh, magnetic materials? So are there any ferrites? or? Um, graphite is a little bit, but that shouldn't matter because it's, it's the particles are so small and it's pretty weak. The domains are going to be mostly crushed up at that right. size. Okay. Well, I'd actually like to, I mean, if we're not going to ask too many more questions about like the actual condensation, I'm actually yeah. kind of curious. Um, you mentioned you're into astrobiology. Um, mm -hmm. Does this pertain to any of the other research or study that you do? Uh, and if so, how? So I do, um, being a senior, I, I still have classes, obviously, but I sure. do a little work with Dr. Jim Bell, and he has a couple instruments on the Curiosity rover and Opportunity rovers on the surface of Mars. So I look at the pan cam and mass cam images and um, sometimes make super res images, kind of looking at small scale features on Mars. But something I'm really interested in is dust storms. And this is kind of a great correlation with that because dust storms on Mars can form from a single dust devil that, you know, that dust particles coagulate and electrify within the atmosphere, and then it can spread to the entire surface of Mars within hours or days. So dust storms are pretty powerful, and that's one of the things that this experiment kind of helps understand. So does that, that kind of talk leads into some other potential applications then. So is this relevant to anything on Earth? Uh, if you're looking at how, how the particles will interact in a vacuum and microgravity, is that the same as how they would act in... Well, there are some studies in uh, the desert in Africa that that study particle-to-particle -particle interaction to understand the dust storms there, but... Another correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the Martian dust extremely fine, like far finer than most dust or grit you would ever see on Earth? It is, but there are still some... 300 range particles. Actually, we can't we can't have finer dust within our experiment because the smaller grains will come up into a vacuum and our advisor Chris Grappi, Dr. Chris Grappi will be very angry if his vacuum is ruined. <laughs> so they there's are they actively pumped or are these just sealed into glass tubes and then under vacuum and then you just cut it off? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're a um, they're a aluminum chamber with glass on each side and oh. then a pump system that's uh, pumped down beforehand. So we'll pump it down to 10 to the negative 6 bar before flight 
and then it'll actually be loaded onto the flight, and then um, you know outgassing and leakage occurs during the flight. So we have to monitor that beforehand and really do a lot of testing to make sure that we're well within our parameters, okay. which are 10 to the negative 4 bar. So we do have a range um, to work with, and roughly 8 hours where it'll have to stay under vacuum since it's not an active pump system on the flight. Yeah. All right, that makes sense. And that I actually did want to go back. So do you, would you say that this is a pretty important first step to understanding and predicting, being able to predict uh, dust storm behavior, so to get us onto a Mars colony? So I, I don't think I would say that, just because it, like you said, the Martian um, the Martian dust on the surface is, is a lot finer. Super fine. It's super fine. Um, maybe even 50 micron size, I think. Um, but it is really important to understand these coagulations for colonies because Suits have to be made specially, uh, especially during the lunar. Yeah, so when they were designing the spacesuits, the lunar regolith and the and northite would uh, get caught in the snaps of their spacesuits. So they they kind of did a lot of dust analysis and and grain size analysis to understand how they can make the suits better to not get in the way of the particles or not let them in. So it has a lot of colonization yeah along with that too it's also uh, helps verify and um, build uh, astrophysical models we understand how a planet or an asteroid or any type of planetary body forms in space past a certain point we understand that gravity is a, a attracting force that other things will pull to that force and it will continue to grow in size but we really don't understand and uh, it's still a scientific question that really no one has a complete validated answer for uh, in the scientific community of how this actually starts so it helps us to verify a model and build a model for astrophysics that then can help us validate some of the other uh, interactions of the laws of physics and how this actually happens. And then that model can then be used for testing of other things. It kind of helps fill in some of the gaps that we still have in science that then can then be applied to other things like spacesuit design and colonization. It's one of those, those questions that we still have before we can try to go live somewhere else. We have to really understand these models in a firm way and have a good grasp on how they work in these interactions and make sure that we're not overseeing something that uh, you know, could be potentially dangerous in the future. All right. Well, I can't that's think of any other... That's really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I can't think of any other science-related questions. Um, so how did this how did this experiment or this project get started? Were any of you involved in starting it? We were not. No, this is actually the third year of this. Um, a couple of our friends actually started it three years ago. They they came up with the idea with the professors, the, the experiment that they wanted to test. They came up with the project. They did all the writing for the proposal and got accepted and built the experiment, did all the outreach, really got the, the first flight going and did all of that. And then there was another interim year last year where we, we were actually both on the team where we put in a second proposal for this reflight uh, and were not accepted. Then most of those people graduated. Um, I took over the leadership of the team. We put in a third proposal and were accepted. The program has a, roughly a 16 to 24% acceptance rate. So uh, we don't get to fly too many times. Uh, any experiments eligible for up to three flights, which are kind of the, the three phases of the research that then could lead to a potentially an ISS flight. Um, you kind of you start with your first flight, you make your modifications and improve your science on the second flight, then potentially you could go to a, a CubeSat configuration or a, a ISS-compatible configuration on your third flight, and then potentially transition into an ISS or a CubeSat flight um, for a long-duration microgravity. 
Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what a CubeSat is? Sure. So a CubeSat is basically a standardized configuration for uh, a spacecraft. It's essentially a small spacecraft, uh, smaller than a shoebox, that can either be launched in conjunction with other payloads on um, any type of launch provider like a SpaceX rocket or um, any of those uh, launch providers. They would launch a couple of uh, CubeSats along with their primary payload or it's a configuration that could go on the ISS. The ISS, the International Space Station, has CubeSat racks where they can essentially just plug them all in uh, and get this data, or they have CubeSat launchers uh, where they can launch it out of the ISS, and uh, it basically just floats until it burns up in uh, re-entry or gets caught on something and is, uh, is the experiment's completed. It's a, it's a small, um, small form factor for an experiment for space. So the advantage of a CubeSat is it's it's so small and it really cheap to get, or relatively cheap to get launched into orbit because you just put a hundred CubeSats on any launch vehicle and they just kind of. It basically optimizes the additional space in the payload fairing. So if you're launching your primary, um, your primary payload may be you know a two hundred million dollar satellite in the in the payload fairing, but then you'll have all that space around it that you can stick a hundred CubeSats in. And uh, that may bring your launch costs down from thirty million dollars down to fifty, sixty thousand dollars. And in some cases, they're um, they're they're launched for free if it's a you know scientific mission or uh, has some type university of projects. University projects, yeah. Uh, so how did you guys get involved then? If you if you didn't start it, was it is this a club? Did you just kind of say, oh, that sounds cool? Or... Um, yeah. I think it's just knowing the people who started it and um, school of. Earth and Space Exploration is, is kind of a, a small college. It, it was started in 2007, so a lot of people know a lot of people, and we all are kind of interested in the same kind of planetary science, and there are a lot of you know events that we all go to and kind of learn about these new opportunities. And, and so I think we just kind of learned about it like that, talking with friends. And I'm also the uh, vice president locally and the vice chairman nationally for the Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. It's a club on campuses that's a catalyst organization for people getting involved in the aerospace community, scientific uh, research. So we have weekly meetings and a lot of people get to meet each other there that then go off and form these groups, these research projects. Um, a lot of different projects that are active now have been started through our chapter and that's where I actually met the people that started the project and that kind of um, spawns those connections as a catalyst for people to go off and start these exciting projects. Okay, so if somebody were to wanting to find a similar project, they should suggest they join a SEDS chapter? Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> it's the way that um, I think most of us have gotten involved, and that's kind of how I got involved. I went to a conference with them, met all these people, and was able to get myself into these projects and get involved. All right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. One of the the things with the the program, the with the reduced gravity student flight opportunities program, is it's just, a ma uh, just as much about the community outreach as it is about the, the experiment itself. Um, they're looking for undergraduates to have the full full scope research experience going from designing a project all the way through to uh, implementation and data analysis. But because it's essentially a $70,000 flight opportunity, they want us to take the public, um, our peers, elementary school students, the elderly, people in industry with us as much as possible. So we do target um, all these different groups and try to reach out to everybody. We go to events on campus, we go to um, you know professional organizations like AIAA, uh, NSS, and talk to them, talk to our peers on different clubs on campus, and try to reach out as much as possible, make people aware of this program so other groups can um, put in proposals or just be knowledgeable about what kind of stuff NASA is doing. All right. 
we actually have a great outreach kind of program that we're trying to lift off the ground um, that we ask our younger fans at elementary schools or middle schools or at these outreach events what would they like to bring into microgravity if they could go? So we kind of give them a bunch of examples, like a slinky. Okay, if you want to bring a slinky, what do you think it would do, and why do you think it would do that? If you don't have gravity, what would what would be the effect of playing with a slinky, or a flower, or drops of water, or a ball, or something like that? Or a pinwheel. A little girl wanted to take a pinwheel and, and you know toss it around. <laughs> so we kind of ask and try to get them get them interested in it and we actually have a couple extra GoPros that we'll be wearing up there so we'll do little mini experiments with these things and post them on our Facebook page afterwards and kind of share with the public as much as we can even after we fly. Okay. We were also approved, uh, I'm one of the explorers for Google Glass so they were approved um, to be flown in flights. I'll be wearing them, and then we'll have the, the point-of-view perspective with glass. That's exciting. Um, try to get that publicized through Google. Um, they have a new campaign where they post uh, a glass video every day, so maybe getting it on there on the website will increase the visibility of NASA and how important it is in everyday society and uh, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, there haven't been any science ones that I've seen on there. <laughs> yeah, so, so we want to kind of get the publicity out through that. That's just bananas. <laughs> Do you guys have a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo campaign? We do. We have an Indiegogo going on. Um, so we're trying to, we're, we're generously funded by um, the School of Earth and Space Exploration, uh, the ASU, or the um, Arizona NASA Space Grant um, is sponsoring us, as well as GoPro. But we do have that, that small little um, bit that we still have to reach. We're, so we're trying to get $2,000 through Indiegogo to help cover some of the travel costs and the, the equipment costs and all the uh, additional stuff that we have to purchase to uh, get ourselves to Houston and be there for 10 days and do all of that. So, so far for our Indiegogo campaign, we've reached $1,385 out of our $2,000 goal. And... You can search us on Google just by searching ASU Dust Devils Microgravity Team, help us understand how our galaxy formed. And you'll see a pretty cool video about all eight of us introducing ourselves and kind of the experiment, this, the experiment kind of now and then what we hope to get it to before we go fly in April, April 4th through 12th. Okay, what's the last day for your campaign? Nine days left. Nine so, days, so that this will come out on Wednesday. So six days after. So it'll be that Tuesday. So that's March 18th. Just mail us the, the links. <laughs> <and> the <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, spread them, we'll spread them around. Thank yeah, you, yeah. The few people that listen. We have um, different perks, too, that people can get depending on how much they, um, they contribute. We can um, give them something from the program, whether it's a mission patch or a, a T-shirt, or even um, for at the $500 level, they'll get one of the, the GoPros that actually flew with us in microgravity. Cool. So if you're looking for a, a deal on a, on a uh, GoPro, that's a good, uh, good one to get. You guys going to sign it? Yeah, we'll sign it. <laughs> oh, we'll sign it. <laughs> yeah, I think that sounds pretty good. So, uh, it's stuff that's been in semi-space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some real flight hardware. Used in a NASA experiment. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put a little plaque on it or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't get too awesome, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you, have anything, do you guys have anything else you want to say? Uh, I think that covers it. Well, well, you guys have been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Yeah, thank you for having yeah, us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that was uh, Jack Lightholder and Liz Dyer telling us about their experiments in microgravity. We're very excited to have them on the program. They they, they were 
killer for their first time doing a podcast interview. Yeah, I think that was our first podcast interview too. Yeah, um, we had we had a guest on earlier, but that wasn't really an interview style format. No, this, but as a, as far as it went, I think that went pretty well. Yeah. yeah, and this was totally in real time. We just did that. Don't. It's not like we recorded that earlier and kind of stuck it in here. Don't and then, worry. And then left where it was a dry campus to go get beer. That didn't happen. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the, the next story that we're talking about today. Um, again, related to microgravity, we are talking about NASA's Cold Atom Lab. And we found this through an article on The Verge, and the article title is Burn Notice. NASA discovers that fireproof materials ignite in space. So this is our, uh, our B story for the week, is that we discovered that the people who write for NASA get bored, <laughs> and they like to... Uh, Throw little like jokes in there. Not, yeah, that was. I mean, that obviously. Well, this, this wasn't ob- written by obviously. NASA. This wasn't the Verge, but this was the Verge. But the uh, but we, you were reading out of that paper where they said uh, we didn't start the fire, but we need to put it out quickly. That's true. So yeah, even <laughs> even the NASA authors have have a sense of humor. Um, this is again a, kind of a misleading title um, because it's not really that they discovered fireproof materials ignite in space. It's more like they discovered that fire is different in space, behaves differently. Yeah. So anyway, I guess we should just get... You, uh... Oh, wait. You're reading the wrong story, bro. Yeah. I am totally <laughs> reading the wrong story. Do I just roll with this one? Or should we restart Restart just do this one? <laughs> yeah. So let's just stick with this one. All right. All right. Uh, so <laughs> this our, story is not NASA's cold atom lab. This is almost the opposite. This is... Uh, NASA's hot atom lab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hot plasma lab. Yeah, uh, just... Light on fire. So this story is actually about, there is actually from a NASA experiment called Burning and Suppression of Solids in Space. So that's the BASS experiment. Uh, so you know NASA likes its acronyms. That's actually one of their better ones. Yeah, yeah, it's not like... You can say it. I cannot, whatever they said the acronym was in the interview, I cannot for the life of me remember it. Oh, I don't remember. They had some interview, yeah. Yeah. So this experiment has come out of the rise of concerns about flammability of materials in space. It's a serious issue, especially for extended space flight, you know, or extended habitation of space. Uh, So, you know, it'll be important for permanent permanent orbital stations or, um, you know, space colonization and that kind of stuff. You want to figure out firefighting techniques for microgravity and how how they differ from firefighting techniques in... Uh, gravity well and actually the point of the article and the, the point of the article is that you can't fight a fire in space the same way you would fight a fire uh in uh, in atmosphere because it uh you, your suppressants don't just fall over the flame and coat the whole thing and smother out oxygen it's that everything is still moving around and then the way that you're spraying air or you know you're spraying a compressed gas over the over the flame might actually cause the the fire to propagate because you're just spreading into oxygen atoms that haven't burned yet. So it's uh, it's an interesting you know, problem. Problem. Yeah, interesting. interesting problem. And the only sh- tr- the only quick and true way to really just 
put out a fire is to vent the atmosphere in that particular area where the fire is. Yeah. Which obviously you don't want to do because you don't want to vent your atmosphere in space. No, because you have astronauts there and experiments and stuff. And, uh... Yeah, anyway. So we can back it up a little bit. Um, you've probably... If, if you've read any, I don't know, Horatio Hornblower or any other Napoleonic-era navy novels or movies you know that fire is like the worst thing that could happen on a boat and it's even worse in space because it, you can't just jump overboard no or or pour water on it <laughs> this is not a very well thought analogy <laughs> well i mean they always you always hear fire is the worst thing that can happen on a, on a ship I thought women was the worst thing that could happen on a ship our pelicans Pel- albatross albatross that's right oh. Man, if you're going to get your sailor folklore, <laughs> come on, man. Step up your sailor sailor folklore knowledge. I mean, that's just bad. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Pelicans. Pelicans. I mean, yeah, they eat your fish, but... <laughs> albatross. Pretty sure that there was no mention of, you know, albatross, pelicans in the rhyme of the ancient mariner, but... All right, fine. So, anyway, fire is dangerous in a confined area, especially because you can't just run away from a fire on a ship. You can't let it burn out. And it's basically going to uh, kill you and use up all your air if you're in space or in a submarine or anything like that. Yeah, that's the biggest concern is that. Um, and actually, you know, like the, the history of fighting fires in space is, goes back to way, way back into the Apollo program. But I mean, the first, you know, incident of fire in space was when well, I think it was Apollo. Uh, one of those ones uh, completely, they, 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 they had uh, they had a high of really their oxygen it was really early it was like the apollo one of the apollo program um early ones apollo something or other had a uh, a fire in the cockpit that killed all three astronauts before takeoff because of a spark that ignited the pure oxygen they had been using instead of a, an oxygen nitrogen mix i think that was in a training yeah but it was cell. it wasn't even yeah was ship. so that was on earth still yeah but, yeah so but fire has a history of, of being a, a concern especially yeah, being very dangerous to astronauts yes um, so one of the thing, one of the things that really changed fire safety in space. I mean, we have we were careful about not starting a fire, but in 1997, uh, on the Mir space station, the Russian space station, they had a small fire that came from a chemical oxygen generator, um, which was a perchlorate canister that you're supposed to burn to produce extra oxygen. It's the same kind of thing you would use on a submarine or uh, commercial airlines use when your the oxygen mask drops down. It's a a chemical up above that's burning to let off oxygen for you to breathe. So they use, they use those pretty regularly, but one of these canisters malfunctioned and started a fire probably because so there's so much extra supplemental oxygen coming off of it that it started a really hot fire, um, and was actually shooting metals, uh, burning metal. It It got so hot. It didn't put, it didn't puncture a hole into the, uh, from, uh, didn't puncture a hole all the way to space, did it? No, no. They were able to put it out, but it, it melted some of the metal on the inside of the spaceship, and it uh, really freaked everybody out. So I think well, it was the first really big fire, or like really dangerous fire that they've had in yeah. in space. Um, so as a response to that, they started the, I believe, uh, <clears throat> they started the Microgravity Science Glove Box in 2002. Yeah, and, just, that's, and that is uh, just a secure, a secure box that they're using to... Uh, measure some of these flam like to experiment with some of these flammabilities in space but uh even though this type but so that the experiment that was in this article that we're we're talking about was performed in that glove in that glove box and uh as we mentioned previously that title is a misnomer but 
um, what they were doing was that they're, they were testing some of the more common fabrics or materials that are used in the spa in space or, you know, just in general to see if there's a, a good way to fight, like to figure out how they, how they ignite and how they, uh, fire propagates through them in microgravity so that you can develop an effective firefighting technique for it. And what they were looking for is that, um, they found that, uh, cotton, which on earth, if you impregnate it with a small amount of fiberglass, actually makes it a uh, flame retardant in space. It actually burns anyway, because you don't have any pushback from, uh, air when you blow, when you blow, uh, yeah, when you blow a fire extinguisher blow, at it or yes. anything. So yeah, the big difference is that when you're burning, well, when a fire burns on Earth, the way it works is that the heat rises because hot air is uh, less dense than cold air, so it rises up. So on Earth, all of the oxygen is feeding to the fire at the bottom, at the base of the flame. So that's why when you when you shoot a fire extinguisher, they say always aim it at the base of the flame because that's where all the oxygen's going. If you cut off the oxygen source, the fire's gone. But you can't do that in space because... The fire is just floating in midair. Yeah, the fire is just floating. There's no... Heat doesn't rise because there is no up in space. Um, so the oxygen can come to the flame from all directions. So the flame doesn't look the same. A flame looks more like a ball. It's kind of kind of crazy. Uh, and it doesn't go up in any direction. So they noticed that if you shoot a fire extinguisher at a flame in space... Um, what you're often doing is, yeah, you might be shooting it at one part, but because you're sh you're actually propelling this uh, fire suppressant at the flame, it's bringing along a bunch of oxygen with it, so it might actually make whatever you're shooting with the fire extinguisher burn faster, because you're giving it more oxygen as you're, you're putting out a tiny bit, but you're giving it more oxygen than it had before. Yeah. So that's really bad. You kind of have to rethink all of the fire... All of our basic fire extinguishing techniques that we've been perfecting for hundreds of years on Earth, just you have to completely reimagine how you're going to fight fire, fight a fire in space. Yeah. Kind of surprising, because I mean, we've been in space for what, 50 years now? You First think... man flight was, I think, 60 years ago. Okay, so we've been well, in space close, for close, close to 60, 60 years. years. So it's, it's a little surprising that we haven't, this, that this hasn't come up sooner or hasn't hasn't been a priority sooner uh, because usually space flight is really they're very concerned with safe the safety of their astronauts and the success of the mission well i mean possibly the reason that it hasn't come up yet is because again we just had our first the first fire wasn't until 1997 or 898 97 97 1997 was the first fire like true fire in space and that is you know, going on 20 years ago, but it takes a while to actually do those experiments because these aren't, again, because these are experiments you can't just work out the math on the ground. You can't figure it out without actually having some hard data from being in space and, you know, doing an experiment in space requires a lot more time and money. Yeah. Like we were saying, it is an entirely different way of conducting an experiment when you have to do everything in space. You know, you had, they didn't, took them five years to even design that uh, microgravity glove, glove box. Yeah. It took them five years to do that, and then, you know... Then this you know, new experiment has only gone up this year, January of, yeah. of 2014. And I'm saying, again, yes, you're right, it isn't, it isn't much of a... There doesn't appear to be much of a hurry, which is surprising, given the, the severity of the concern that you can have, but I mean... 
it's uh, it's a start. It's definitely something that we need to look at if we're going to have uh, extended habitation of space or even try to lay send uh, colonists because this is this will also be a problem in any sort of enclosed environment of a, of a colony on Mars or on a, yeah or, or on or a lunar colony or any of that stuff. It will be very that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything is from from here on out. Everything is going to be lower gravity than it is on Earth, yeah. so it's going to behave differently. All right. So, um, so what this experiment is actually doing is they they brought up forty one different types of fuel samples: um, candles, cotton, fiberglass, Nomex, PMMA, which is just uh, polymethylmethylate. <laughs> yeah, it's it's polyester, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. And uh, and some wax, uh, and they're going to test different fire suppression techniques um they're considering using a nitrogen suppressant instead of venting that that portion you just Pump. release nitrogen towards it and then it takes all the oxygen out of that area mm-hmm. um instead of shooting a stream of i actually don't know what our fire extinguishers are made of i know they're a b and c and all those are different stuff but I know, I know which win, which one to use on what kind of fires, but I don't know what's actually in most of them, except that the big silver one is water. Hmm. You don't use that on an oil, on a grease or a chemical fire, or certain chemical fires. But anyway, so they're testing these different types of fuel, or different fuels, different shapes for the fuel sources, and uh, different ways to put out the fire. So maybe you should aim a normal fire extinguisher somewhere else, and it'll work just as well. But... The uh, they'll have to figure that out. Yeah, that's definitely something we're gonna. Sorry, I'm I'm looking up what what chemicals are in fire extinguishers. Wow, this is an art. This is not a useful article at all. Yeah, I think it's it's a lot of stuff. So I don't think we'll be able to say it. Some of them say small of them are sodium bicarbonate chemicals, which makes sense. Nitro- nitrogen, nitrogen, water, and foam. Okay. So it's basically anything that just displaces oxygen. All right, that makes sense. That's what you want to do is you just want to get the oxygen out of there because that's what burns. Also hydrogen. Yeah, well, since we are uh, trying to get rid of fire and fire is hot, we could uh, move on to another uh, International Space Station experiment in the uh, NASA Cold Atom Lab. I'm, I'm so frustrated with that transition. So this next experiment is the NASA Cold Atom Lab. Um, basically what they're doing is they are taking uh, atomic gases of rubidium and sodium and cooling them down to the coldest temperatures that we know of in the entire universe. It's the coldest, What they, I believe what they said was it's the coldest place in the universe. Yeah, they're going to make they're the cold. ISS the coldest place in the universe. It starts in 2016, um, but there was some press about it recently. Uh, the, actual, the article we're actually talking about was on LiveScience.com. Um, the article title is Scientists to Create Coldest Spot in Universe on the Space Station. And there's actually a video to go along with this, so we'll post a link to that story and the video in the show notes. That's right. The coldest place in the universe is not the heart of your ex. Well, that's, that's, that's all relative. I don't know, man. I, I doubt that you can measure someone's heart, the, the coldness of someone's heart, in pico-kelvins. Anyway. We're not bitter. <laughs> Neither of us is ever bitter about anything. 
<laughs> so, the what they want to do is uh, cool this this rubidium and sodium atomic gas down to very very cold temperatures. Uh, they want to go to one picokelvin, which is one times ten to the minus twelve. 12. So it's one. Yeah, one, one trillionth, trillionth of a Kelvin. Of, of, a, de- of a degree, degree Kelvin. Kelvin. And now zero degrees Kelvin is... Equivalent to negative something. Negative two... Or so it's, yeah, it's, it's basically equivalent to negative 273.1 with a bunch of zeros after it, and then a one uh, uh, in Celsius. Yes. So it's very, very cold. Uh, zero degrees Kelvin is absolute zero, which is a thing that is... Uh, it's a theoretical temperature. Yeah, it's basically just a theoretical temperature. It's, it's energy... Basically, it's it's impossible because you can never take all of the energy out of an atom. So they, what they're doing is they're just cooling things down really, really close to all of the energy being gone. Uh, but there's always going to be some energy left. But we're we're getting to the point where it's almost negligible. It's a rounding error in terms of you know. But you're starting. Maybe I don't yeah, know. but you're starting to see this really cool effects. The coolest thing about <clears throat> this story that we're seeing is that uh, sodium and rubidium at these extremely low temperatures, begin to behave almost like they're light. Yes. So they exhibit the part. They exhibit both the, the behavior of both a wave and a particle, which is something that previously, which is something that light does. Yeah. Like, so they, when they're cooled down that cold, they actually turn into a Bose-Einstein condensate. Um, I guess we can post a link to the Wikipedia article about that. But basically, what it is is it's a it's their atoms. So it's actually a, a a solid, or a, not a solid, but uh, something that actually has mass that shows quantum mechanical effects at a macroscopic scale. Um, so normally you have to have only one atom on its own to see any quantum mechanical effects, or a, a very few number of atoms. This, this Bose-Einstein condensate lets you see it, see these quantum mechanical effects at higher, for larger systems. Uh, they said up to 100 microns which is the size of a human hair uh, so we should be able to see it you, you theoretically you could see it with your eye um, if it weren't inside this whole system probably uh, <laughs> and Bose-Einstein Einstein condensates were theorized by uh, Einstein and a mathematician whose last name was Bose um, he's Indian in the 1920s and the first one that was ever produced was in 1995 so at 75 years later. At, at University of Colorado Boulder. Well, NIST, which is run by, yeah, UC Boulder. Uh, and what they did to create that Bose-Einstein condensate was cool down a rubidium atomic gas, so use the same atom used in this one, to 170 nanokelvin. So that's 170 times 10 to the minus 9. the same thing as 0.17 times 10 to the minus 6. Yeah. So, no. so this is uh, 1, 2, 3, 4... It's six times or six orders of magnitude large, warmer. The, the temperature is six orders of magnitude higher than it is in this one picokelvin minimum for this cold atom lab. Yes, this is a much, much, much colder experiment, which we will probably, which hopefully will allow us to see these quantum mechanical effects more clearly. Yeah, for for longer times in larger uh, areas and more clearly. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's pretty neat. There's some quantum mechanical stuff that I'm not really too up on. <laughs> yeah, well basically what they what they want to do is they, they've made these rubidium uh, Bose-Einstein condensates and they've made sodium 
Bose-Einstein condensates, and now they want to do experiments with them interacting with each other. So it's basically, you're able to perform quantum mechanics experiments outside of a computer, or outside of an equation, uh, which is very exciting. You could, you could discover a lot of new quantum physics, or you could uh, prove or disprove some theoretical quantum physics that right right now. I don't do a lot of this, so I don't know. I don't, I don't do a lot of quantum physics, so I don't really understand all of the implications of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's. I did want to. I did want to discuss maybe a little bit. Uh, one thing I saw that was interesting in the article was that uh, if you mix the two Bose-Einstein condensates together, they can interfere with each other and actually make it look like and actually have it be that two atoms is equivalent to no atoms. Yeah, in certain areas. So that's that's kind of the point of a Bose-Einstein condensate is that. Like you said earlier, they behave both as a particle and a wave at the same time, just like light does. So if you have two lasers, you can actually shine them through a... You can interfere them with each other, and there will be areas where there is a bunch of light and then areas where there are no light, and they form... It's like an interference pattern. Okay. Um, you see this a lot if you if you ever shine light through a diffraction pattern. Is it actually a good way to see this interference and yeah. and okay. uh, coherent? So they're saying that this would be uh, that you're saying that they'd be able to see an interference pattern of they want to try to measure interference patterns of two Bose-Einstein condensates. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So they'll be able to perform experiments with these two things interacting with each other. Um, the way they do this, the way they cool it down to this really cold temperature is it's actually necessary to use the International Space Station. Um, normal, on, on Earth, we can get down to really cold temperatures. I mean, we, at NIST, they got it down to this, Nanokelvin. uh, nano, 170 nanokelvin. So, yeah, that's a hundred, or that's a million picokelvin. Mm-hmm. But, the, we, you can't get it down that much colder because you always have a lot of extra energy being put into the atoms. And a lot of that is from the Earth's gravitational field. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you have to do to cool things down that cold is uh, you, you have a magnetic trap that, that first uses very powerful magnets to suspend the particles within a certain area. And then after that, you use uh, a laser interference trap to, we've, we've talked about this even on the last episode. Uh, it's the same as the laser tweezers. You use interfering lasers to create areas of high energy and low energy, and the atoms will fall into the low energy areas and be trapped there because they don't have enough, they'll lose their energy, and they don't have enough energy to move and jump out of the interference wells mm-hmm. of, the, of the lasers. Um, so this is actually the way we get down to really cold temperatures. Cold temperature is the, basically the same as taking energy out of it. So if something is down, is stuck in this low energy well in a laser interference, that's technically the low temperature that it has. So the yeah, the problem on Earth is that you always have gravity pulling down on these particles towards the center of the Earth. So with something just performing this experiment on the International Space Station, there is very little gravity. Uh, they only have microgravity to to compete against. So it takes it's much easier to cool things down and to get rid of all of that energy out of there. Okay. So that's how they are able to make this the coldest place in the universe. It's very neat. Yeah. Um, this experiment isn't up there yet. It is supposed to be 
let's see, the, the announcement was released in, in July of 2013, and I think it's supposed to go up to the International Space Station in early 2016. They, the experiment should will last at least one year, and then they have up to five additional years after that of extended operation, depending on what results they find. If the results they find are, oh, look, there's nothing interesting to find here, then they'll just take it out and replace it with another experiment. But so because there's limited space on the International Space Station for cool scientific experiments. They basically ship up modules and then kind of plug them into the space yep. station, and then everything runs off of that. That's a little bit of how they were... And to a certain extent, that's like how they also do our little micro-experiments like they were like uh, Jack and uh, Liz were telling us about earlier. Yeah, yeah, sort of like how the, the CubeSats, except these are yeah. these are modules that plug directly into the space yes. station. Yes, that people can actually walk in rather than just a shoebox-sized thing. Yep. Yep. So... Um, it's going to be operated on Earth by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory instead of by the... It'll be operated remotely instead of... So the astronauts don't actually have to interact with it mm-hmm. very much, except plugging it in, probably. I don't know everything about it, but it looks like most of the experiments can be controlled by JPL. And, uh, yeah. It's very neat. That's, that's very cool. Yeah. Very nice. Very quick. Very quick. All right. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about this? Space is rad, guys. Space is super cool. Yeah. So if you guys want to uh, want to do cool space stuff, you should uh, get a degree in science or engineering, and uh, just there's a lot. And as as we saw earlier, there are a lot of different ways you can get involved with space. Uh, you know, Liz was into astrobiology, which yep. I think is just completely neat. If you're into biology, maybe you want to discover some bi- how uh, being in space affects living things. And I believe Jack was a computer science major, so he yep. wasn't even uh, he wasn't studying. Anything space related, related directly, but uh, you can still get into a lot of cool. You can still get involved in a lot of cool space stuff just by uh, hanging out with people and joining cool clubs. So even if you aren't a university student, you can still get involved with a lot of these groups on on campuses or in your area. And I mean, and like like they were saying earlier, outreach is a big part of uh, what is necessary in the scientific community. I think it's very important for people to get the message out that you know there is. A lot of so there is a lot of cool things happening with science, with engineering, all that, and that we need, we do need a lot of money to do it. Yes. But it is the future of our world and our and our society, and we really need to just get more people interested in this. So, I mean, even if you're not a university student, even if you have no science background, you can still help by just spreading like these by spreading around like these like really cool stories telling people about the really interesting things that are happening in the scientific community and also by donating money to the uh like these small operations like like jack and uh this is yeah they have they have an indiegogo campaign um there's also the we did we didn't talk about it uh it just ended but round four of the sci fund challenge is a Kickstarter, a uh, <clears throat> not a Kickstarter. It's a crowdfunding thing for scientific experiments that runs off of Experiment.com, and for that, uh, people who want to run scientific experiments sign up, and they get uh, people like you to help pay for their research instead of having to go through the the government for everything. Or get or going through a laborious grant writing process that ends up with, uh, especially if you're doing work for a company, they want to have a uh, marketable stuff. They're not just looking for proof of concept or, or anything like, you know, deeper understanding. They just want to yeah, be able to market. Yeah, they just want a product right off the they bat. Want, they want a product that they can market. So I'm so it's very important to, to just be aware of, of the cool scientific stuff that's happening every day. So yep. definitely uh, 
tell your friends about that campaign. Please uh, throw throw if you have a couple bucks, throw throw some money their way to help them out with this experiment. It's very cool that they get to do this. It's very yeah. very cool they get to go and. Uh, you know, I want to ride that on. that zero G plane. That yeah, would be awesome. that'd be very. I don't know. I think I couldn't even do the. I couldn't even do like the gyroscope training thing at space camp. I, <laughs> I was like, no. You I'm actually not. went to space camp. That's right. Didn't I, went to, you? I went to go to space oh, camp. I forget that every time. I'm so jealous. It was a lot of fun, and I'm saying, and so yeah, just get involved. Think it, it's cool. It's like yeah, you can. There are levels of the. It's like we we skipped over all of the math on that. Uh, <laughs> Bose Einstein <laughs> condensates because we honestly, we're, we're, the applications, the applications for it, for it so. or anything that, that it means, it's just like a bunch of theoretical. It's very theoretical, and so but there have to be physicists who can do this math in order to exactly. for us to do anything. I mean, if you look at a lot of people will say, "What's the practical application of this?" Well, look at the laser. Was everybody joked? Oh, there's no practical application for it. Einstein theorized it in the twenties. Nope, nobody made it until the 50s or 60s, and there was no practical application. And then somebody invented the CD, and, and now I, basically everything is lasers. And I'm, I'm not saying that, that, I'm just saying that just because you don't like the math side of things doesn't mean that you can't be involved, doesn't mean that you can't love science or love the idea of what, what people are trying to do or think that it's neat that people are trying to figure out the fundamental building blocks of what makes the entire universe work. It is absolutely neato burrito. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have to be a mathematician to do cool space stuff or any science stuff. Yeah. So, all right. Well, <laughs> and if you if you are doing any cool science stuff um, and you want to talk to us, you can send an email to contact at laserpodcast.com and uh, maybe we'll get you on we'll try to get you on the show. Yeah, if you yeah, also if you're listening to the show and you have some research that you want to talk about on the show, we actually really like conducting that interview and we would be absolutely delighted to read read through your research and have you come on the come on and talk about it and if you want to get some exposure outside you know just your research group we would love to talk to you guys about it yeah so please give us an you know give us an email at that contact at laser podcast and we we'd love to hear from you guys and uh if you aren't a scientist there then uh, and you have anything else you want to talk to us about uh, if you want to leave us any comments or suggestions for the show, uh, any topic suggestions, something that you want us to talk about that we haven't been, you can also email us at that same email address, contact at laserpodcast.com. Uh, we also each have personal email addresses. I'm Cameron at laserpodcast.com. Uh, Chase has chase at laserpodcast.com. Look, and I don't remember what mine was. <laughs> <laughs> it's very complicated. It's very hard to remember my first name. Oh, we also have a Twitter account. We're just at Laser Podcast. And then we are on Facebook and Google+. Plus. Um, <laughs> we are actually on Google+, Plus and we have probably the same number of likes who aren't our personal friends on Google+, Plus as we do on <laughs> Facebook. So, uh... Sad. Hey, I, I happen to like Google+, Plus a lot. Uh, I, again, it's nice kind of... We're not, we're not going to get into the social media discussion here, but... but All right. But, We'll also set up a Vine account too. I don't know. Is that is that cool anymore? Is Vine cool? I don't know. Maybe Pinterest to share stories. Or I, I, we're not make, we're not talking about recipes, Cameron, or like pictures of like cupcakes. So it's like, well, what are we what are we going to share? And it's like, look, this is this. Uh, I guess we could like a picture of a laser. Yeah, lasers are cool. Lasers are cool, but I mean, it's like, how do you combine lasers and like cupcakes? Whatever. I'm pretty sure like 95 percent of Pinterest is just cupcakes and like kittens. And weddings. 
Probably. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's like 95% of Pinterest. I use Pinterest to actually get a lot of cooking recipes. It's useful for that. Because you can see the picture of the recipe right there. I think Imgur is also good for that, too. Eh. Anyway. Um... You can also help us out a lot if you go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a rating and a review. Right now, we don't have any user commentary this week because nobody left us a review last week. <laughs> we would, even if you're just, even if you're just like messaging us to say, you know, I think you guys are idiots. Like, yeah, just call us idiots. We'll we'll giggle about it and drink beer. It'll be funny. If if you don't like us, go on iTunes and leave us a bad review and just the mo- but having enough aggregate reviews will like just help us get some exposure and maybe find an audience that maybe doesn't hate us or think we're stupid that's true yeah we can always change we're still in that early early podcast stage where we can easily change the little pieces and and, uh, and again if you want to uh leave comments on itunes about things you'd like to see in the show about more interviews less interviews less of me less of cameron <laughs> yeah more more talking about the science of the beer we drink um do an entire, or if you want us to do like themed episodes or something like that, anything like that, we like any suggestions would help us out. We're really very open to it. We would, we just want to help uh, spread the word about cool science stuff. That's true. That's all right, pretty much our entire mission. Well, thank you all for listening again, and uh, have a good night. Yeah, good night, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. This has been Laser. Let's agree, science and engineering are rad. Show notes with links to everything we talked about are available on the website at laserpodcast.com. You can send us an email to contact at laserpodcast.com, contact us on Twitter at laserpodcast, or find us on Facebook or Google+. If you want to help out the podcast, you can tell a friend or leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, or you can use the Amazon affiliate link on our website before you make any Amazon purchases. Thanks to the band Crying for providing our intro music, and to The Wild for providing our outro music. Lest lest our uh, lest our previous guests think that we had uh, any sort of tone or class or sophistication to the show that they just agreed to be on. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, we're we're clearing our throats. Really? I just can you? I, I take it. Okay, you know what? It, it I, makes you know, sense you, you know what, logically. You, you, know what, you can keep it. You can keep that transition if you make this transition song that you play. Katy Perry's Hot and Cold. Okay. In? That's a deal? Deal. Awesome. Okay. I'll sign off on it then. (laughs) Alright. Music plays. Jazz hands. Look at that. That's a crazy sign. That's a crazy way. You got got your jazz hands up to half a decibel. What? (laughs) I 
<laughs> that was my wrist popping. <laughs> so, what? I thought NASA had all their acronyms though oh for it. Yeah, yeah, it's like R Grep Grep something. <laughs> <laughs> you should just go back and name everything like after Greek gods. <laughs> the Apollo Orion, that's the Orion. number one. Okay. I want Dr. Starfield's last name. For being an astronomer too, like how much wow. better can that get? Honestly, that's at that point you're like, yeah, our, my parents named me. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> I had no choice. Yeah. Pause for a sip of beer. Is, is it muted? No. Okay. It's recording. Okay. Yeah, it. That seems stupid. Yeah, I, I would prefer it to have no light when it's off. Although maybe, maybe the red light is to like say it's on. Microphone is on. That's like the red recording light on the door. Yeah. You wish you had a studio with a red recording light on the door. I'm going to build myself an acrylic red recording light and just flip it on when I'm recording. And you just and maybe you're just going to line your, your brewery room with egg carton. and Yeah, why not? While I'll just sit in there and drink coffee. <laughs> coffee. With, with rum in it. <laughs> <laughs> Jazz hands! Oh, you can hear the jazz hands. Look at that. Do you see that? Yeah, I saw that. That's why I was excited about it. You can hear jazz hands. <laughs> <laughs> jazz hands. Keep that in there. <laughs> see, and this is the 10 minutes of bonus features people would definitely want to hear. How loud can we get our jazz hands? Oh. No, not nearly as loud that time. Hey, I hope I wish you guys could see the waveform. This is pretty they're pretty funny.